Let's bow our heads once more as we go to the Lord to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word now, we ask for fresh light from your spirit to understand what you have revealed to us in your word about your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to marvel afresh at his love for us, his intercession for us, his faithfulness to you on our behalf. May we learn from his example how to pray and what to pray. May we be all the more encouraged that he has prayed for us. Encourage our hearts now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. On the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, Jesus prays one last prayer for himself and for his followers in view of his death on the next day. In John 17, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, John pulls back the curtain on that moment to give us a glimpse of the close and tender relationship between the Son and the Father. This morning we overhear Jesus praying for himself and for us. Yet there is such a wonder to this prayer that you wonder if it's okay that you're there listening in on it as you read it. Is this okay? Am I allowed to hear this? Reading John 17 is as if we've walked around the corner into a room where there is such holiness, such love, such a depth of feeling that we are stopped in our tracks and we stand in awe here. We marvel at this. We have never seen or heard love praying like this. So as you listen, don't just try to pick up secrets of an effective prayer life. You will you will waste You will waste this if all you're trying to do is say, how do I get Jesus to say yes to me about whatever I want? It's not how to listen to this. You should look at this and listen and think, how does Jesus love me? How does Jesus pray for me? And you should marvel, Christian. You should marvel at this. You should worship Jesus for how he prays, and for what he prays. So we'll read the text through on its own, the entirety of the chapter, John 17. Then we'll go back through it once with the question, how does Jesus reason with God in prayer? How does he pray? And then we'll go through it a second time with the question, what does Jesus ask from God in prayer? So follow along with me as we read John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, (coughs) he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. (coughs) So first, how does Jesus ask How does Jesus reason with God in prayer? So the point of this question is to see what arguments or reasons does Jesus use as he asks God for a yes to his own prayers? How do you reason with God? How does Jesus appeal to God? What reasons does Jesus give God for saying yes? What are the grounds or bases or justifications for these prayers? How does Jesus wrestle with God in prayer so that the Son prevails with the Father and the Father grants his request? How do you argue with omnipotence and omniscience? How do you reason with sovereignty? How do you appeal to transcendence? How do you not just talk to God? How do you reason with God as you appeal to Him? How did Jesus do that? So the following will be reasons that Jesus gives to the Father for answering the prayers that he asks. These are reasons. God, do these things for these reasons. First, for the Father's glory. For the Father's glory. The reason Jesus asked the Father to glorify the Son is so that the Son may glorify the Father. Glory is splendor. It is magnificence 
shining out to be known and acknowledged for what it is. To glorify is to make splendor visible and enjoyable and admirable to others. And here the hour has come, Jesus says, for the Son to be glorified. But that glory is the glory of the cross. That hour is the hour of his crucifixion. His hour has now come. Where then is the glory in a cross that is known for shame? The glory of Jesus' cross is in his obedience to the Father's command and will. That's the glory of it. He obeyed willingly. The Son does want his own glory. His own lifting up in the suffering of the cross for the sake of reflecting and radiating the Father's splendor in his righteousness and mercy as they meet in the cross. It's the splendor and beauty of the Father's wisdom and righteousness, his authority and power, his love and mercy and compassion for sinners, all coming together in the plan of redemption that climaxes in the cross of Christ. So Jesus is not trying to avoid the cross. He is eager for it here. He's not dreading it. He is embracing the glory of it for the praise of his Father's wisdom and righteousness and mercy to sinners in providing that cross for them. The Father's glory is the reason the Father does everything he does to begin with. This is the argument of all arguments with God. And again, by argument, I don't mean starting a disagreement. I mean giving him a reason. What is your rationale? What is Jesus' rationale for asking God to grant his requests? This is the motive, the ground, the basis, the reason that prevails most deeply with the Father. When God does things, he does them for his own namesake, for the sake of his own reputation, for the sake of the radiance of his splendor and character emanating and pulsating out from everything he does to all the created order to see and admire and enjoy. Read the book of Ezekiel all the way through and count how many times God says he's going to do something for his own name, or so that you may know that I am the Lord. That's God doing things for his glory. Or read Exodus. Why does he bring the plagues on Egypt? Read of the golden calf. Why does Moses think God should forgive his people for their false worship of him? It's always that the people will acknowledge God for who he is in all the splendor of his glory and majesty and mercy. His sovereignty, His righteousness, His love. The Son is in it for the Father's glory. Jesus wants everybody to know how magnificent His Father is. And Jesus wants that through His own endurance of the cross for our forgiveness and atonement. His desire for His own glory through suffering is rooted in honoring His Father's glory. So if you want to know how to pray about your own suffering, about your own loss, about your own hardships in pursuing holiness and testifying to Christ, don't just pray that it would stop or that you could avoid it ever happening to begin with. Pray that God would glorify himself in it by the way you endure it. Second motive, second reason the Son gives for the Father to grant his requests is because 
the Father authorized the Son. In verse 2, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. You gave me this authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So glorify the Son in the Son's suffering at your command and for your people. The Father himself gave the Son authority to give eternal life. That eternal life is only going to happen through Jesus' death and resurrection. Therefore, it is in line with the Father's authorization of the Son to glorify the Son as he has requested. This glory, the glory of giving eternal life through Jesus' death, is the reason God authorized the Son as Redeemer and Mediator. So make good on that authorization, Jesus says. You authorize me, so lift me up, to die on the cross and raise me up from the grave so that I can obediently exercise the authority you gave me to give life to all that you have given me. Jesus asks here only what the Father has already authorized him to be and do. So again, you want to prevail with God in prayer? Then know what he has already said what he has already authorized and promised in his word, and ask that. Ask him to make good on that. This is God-centered, scripture-informed, scripture-authorized prayer. Give life, Father, to all your people in Jesus' death and resurrection. Third reason the Son gives for the Father answering is because of the Son's obedience. In verse 4, I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. Only Jesus can pray like that about himself. You don't get to pray like that about yourself. I don't get to pray like that. Not about myself. But we can pray like that about Jesus for ourselves and each other. The reason the Father should say yes to glorifying the Son is because Jesus glorified the Father by obeying his commission. Jesus literally earned God's yes to these requests by his obedience. He obeyed and merited his way to God's yes for Jesus' glory. Jesus accomplished as the second Adam what the first Adam failed to do. And what all of us since were unable and unwilling to do. And he did it in our stead, on our behalf, for us. God created all humanity to know and love and serve him forever. He put Adam on probation in the garden and said, If you obey me and leave the knowledge of good and evil to me, if you will rule my world under my kingship, I will bless you. I will glorify you and all your posterity to a state of eternal, sinless bliss and glory with me. Adam refused to do that. He sinned. And Adam represented us in that sin. And he represented us perfectly and accurately because who appointed Adam as your representative? God did. God did. So Adam rebelled against God's law and love as our representative, and that rebellion against an eternally holy, loving, righteous God merited eternal conscious torment in hell for himself and all those he represented. We would have done the same thing. Adam represented us accurately. And Adam's rebellion changed both Adam's nature and ours. It made us curve in on ourselves against God so that our natural bent is rebellious and disobedient to God. It's morally corrupt. It's unclean. It's degenerate. And we are arrogant about it. We pride ourselves in that. The whole reason God sent Jesus to become a man then is that God wanted to save people from the power and penalty of their sinfulness in Adam. Jesus' sinless life was lived so that His righteousness could be credited to our account 
And so that his life could vindicate God's righteous demands in the law that we broke. And so that his death could be that which endured God's curse and satisfied God's wrath against us for our sin. That and nothing nothing less is the obedience Jesus is pleading here in prayer as a reason for God to glorify him. I did what you told me to do, Father. I held up my end, now now hold up yours. And that, Christian, is how you pray, not about yourself, but about Jesus for yourself. You pray, Father, your son, Jesus, held up my end for me. I know I have not held up my end. But you gave me Jesus to hold up my end, and he did it. So now, would you glorify yourself in my obedience to you, imperfect as it is, because of the perfection of Jesus' obedience on my behalf? Will you glorify your Son and yourself in my personal holiness? Grow me in holiness because of the merit of Jesus' righteousness. Say yes to my desire and request to overcome my besetting sins because Jesus earned your yes to that request on my behalf by his obedience. Glorify yourself in my ministry, in my evangelism, in my preaching, in my love for my family, in the shared life and ministry of this church, not because of any righteous works we have done, but because of all the righteous works Jesus has done on our behalf for your glory. That's how you pray. You want to know how to appeal to God. You want to know how to tug at God's heartstrings. This is it. His glory and Jesus' obedience. That's how you appeal to God. <clears throat> Thirdly, Jesus asks the Father to answer Yes, because of the Father's election of his people. In verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And he then elaborates on the Father's giving of a people to the Son. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. That's a reference to the covenant of redemption from eternity past between the Father and the Son to redeem a people. For Jesus' glory and for the Father's pleasure. They agreed the Father would give the Son a people to save. The Father would select and own a special people in a special way. That's what Israel represented in the Old Testament. And he would give that people as a gifted trust to the Son for the Son to teach and save. So Jesus' argument here is... Father, these people whom I have taught, these 11, these are the people you gave me. You gave them to me. I did not choose them on my own accord. You gave them to me. I accepted them from you. They were yours from before all time. You gave them to me to save. I have shown them who you are. I have been faithful to your trust and to your purpose in choosing them. And now I am praying not only on my own behalf, but for them, that you would preserve them, keep them. These are your people. You have made them mine, but we both know that they belong to both of us. They are yours, Father, by election, and they are mine by redemption. They are jointly ours, but Father, you started this. You are the one who gave them to me. So finish now by the accomplishment of redemption in my death and resurrection, what you started by your election. Now here again, look at how the Bible uses the doctrine and truth of election. First of all, there is no disputing that the doctrine of election is true. You cannot read this passage and be like, yeah, I just don't believe in election." well, then you don't believe in something that Jesus is praying to his Father on our behalf. 
If you, if you say you don't believe in election, you don't believe in one of the main reasons that Jesus thinks God should answer his prayers for you. It's in there. You've got to come to terms with it. But the way you come to terms with it is not by kicking against it or arguing against it or trying to talk over it. You know, sometimes I, I catch myself doing that with people in my own house. I will we'll be arguing, we'll be disagreeing, and I'll just try to talk louder than them so that I don't have to listen to them contradict what I'm saying. Usually it's because I know that she's right. <laughs> but we do that with the doctrine of election, don't we? We just try to talk over the doctrine of election by quoting any other verse that we think can out voice election in the Bible. That's not going to happen. You're not going to win. Election's in there. What you have to do is listen to how the doctrine of election is spoken of you and to you and how it's used. The doctrine of election is not used in the Bible to beat you over the head like a hammer. The doctrine of election is not in there to confuse you or to discourage you or to make you question your salvation. It's in there to encourage you. It's always used as an encouragement. It's not a conundrum to confuse you. It's a little sweet cordial to comfort you and console you. You chose them, Father. Look, man, if he's praying for you, And he's saying to the Father, Father, you chose her. You chose him. Oh, now you love the doctrine of election, don't you? If it's applied to you, you love it. You cherish it. You grab onto it and you never let go of it because it's your security. It's like your little Linus blanket after a while. You just take the doctrine of election around with you and you don't go anywhere without it. Because you know, this is why. This is why. I've asked why for 25, 35, 45 years. Why me, God? Why me, God? Why me, God? And you answered me, because I chose you. Because I decided to set my love on you. I loved you because I decided to. That's why. And all of a sudden, that doctrine smells so good to you. And you find security in it. There's a solidity to it, a familiarity to to it. Christian, you can pray like that. You chose them, Father, so now cherish them as I prepare to leave the world in my death and resurrection. You can and should use the truth and doctrine of God's election of his people as a solid bedrock for your prayers on your own behalf and on theirs. You chose me. You chose us. You chose them. I don't know why. It just pleased you. It wasn't anything because of us, but you chose. You chose, God. So now will you cherish? Another reason, fifth reason, because of the disciples' faith in Jesus. Because of the disciples' faith in Jesus. They have kept your word. Verse 7 Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in the truth that I have come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They know Christ's words are from God. They know Christ himself is from God. They know Christ's people are from God. They have taken Jesus at his word. They have trusted Jesus as God incarnate, the Messiah. Their faith is far from perfect, as we know. They will all abandon him this very night, just as he had just told them at the end of the previous chapter. But weak as their faith is, they are trusting in a strong Savior. They have honored God by their faith in the one whom God sent. They have kept Jesus' word in the sense that they are abiding in him, with him, as branches in the vine. They did not abandon him when he said they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They've stuck with him when others have already quit following him because his teaching was too foreign or too demanding. They know and trust Jesus for who he is, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, sent from heaven. 
And so our trust is a ground, a rationale, a reason that Jesus uses in prayer to, for us to the Father, and we can do the same. Father, I've trusted you. <laughs> I've taken you at your word. The reason I am praying to you about this very thing that I'm bringing you is that I've trusted you. So will you honor that trust? Will you make good on it? Will you prove yourself reliable and trustworthy to me, to us, to him, to her? We are relying on you. Sixth reason, because of the divine unity. Verses 9 and 10, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So the argument here is joint ownership of the elect between the Father and the Son. The Father and Son are in lockstep about who they are saving and why. There's no disagreement or competition between the Father and Son about who they are saving or about whether they should save the church or not. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. Christian, read that again. That's life verse stuff. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. You want encouragement? You want assurance? Let that sink down into your heart. Christian, Jesus is talking about you. All mine are yours, Father, and all yours are mine. We belong to Father and Son jointly. And that mutual ownership and responsibility is an argument Jesus uses with God in prayer for us. I am praying for them because they are ours. You chose them for yourself, Father, and then you gave them to me. But in giving them to me, I did not take them away from you. We retain them jointly. We are united in keeping them and holding them together. The church and every believer in it is the joint holding of the Father with the Son. It doesn't get any more secure than that. It is so secure that Jesus uses it as an irrefutable reason for the Father to answer his prayers for us. Seventh argument, because of Jesus' physical absence in verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, verse 11, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. And again in verse 13, but now I am coming to you. Jesus knows that his physical absence from his disciples and from the world is not what they expected and it will be a trial to them. They will feel his distance and Jesus has compassion for us as he anticipates us feeling that distance. And he knows that the Father also has compassion for us in feeling Jesus' physical absence. And so he presses the Father's compassion as another reason for answering Jesus' prayers for us. And you can pray like that too. Father, Jesus is not with us anymore, and I want nothing more than to cry on his shoulder, to ask him direct questions, to be with him, to rejoice with him, to sing to him and with him, to ask him why he took my loved one away, to ask him, how do I move on? How do I honor you in this difficulty, in this prolonged disease and pain and confusion and trial and lack of success? So will you comfort me? Will you comfort us? Will you comfort my brothers and sisters in Christ, my fellow church members in their suffering and sorrow, in their confusion and cares? Because it would feel different if Jesus were with us physically, wouldn't it? So give them some sweet providence. Give them some cordial. Fill them with your spirit. Remind them of your words. Have compassion on their earthly sorrows while Jesus is in heaven.
atheism because of the world's hatred. Verse 14, I've given them your world, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Look at that, Christian. Even the world's hatred for us because we are in Christ is an argument Jesus uses to elicit the Father's compassion for you. Father, the world hates him, the world hates her, the world hates them. And he has compassion for us in our experience and sorrow under the world's hatred for us in our loyalty and love to Christ. And Jesus knows that the Father has that same compassion for us under the world's hatred. And that is an argument Jesus deploys in prayer to God for us. Charles Spurgeon said this, When Israel in Egypt... When Israel in Egypt was reduced to its lowest point and it seemed that the covenant would be void, then Moses appeared and wrought mighty miracles. And so too, when the church of God is trampled down and her message is derided and hated, we may expect to see the hand of the Lord stretched out for the revival of religion, the defense of the truth, and the glorifying of the divine name. The prominence of evil can be made to quicken us, to enliven us, to supplication, to prayer. Every sin may be used as a plea in prayer. So we should cry out to God, Lord, sin is at work, be thou also at work. Sin is hardening, sin is defiling. Come, Lord, and work with all the softening and quickening processes of thy blessed spirit, with all that purifying power of the water and the blood, and so undo the evil working of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You pray like that when you are feeling the hatred of the world for your love and obedience to Jesus. When you see the prevalence of sin all around you, making worldliness look normal and righteousness look strange, and that makes you feel hated as a bigot, as a hypocrite, as a humanity hater, as insular and backward. This is how you pray. You pray it back to God. Well, the world hates me. The world hates everything I stand for because I'm not of them. And they know it. They hate that. Jesus hears that. God hears that. All these reasons are so solid that they give an optimistic flavor to this prayer. This prayer is not Jesus lamenting or worrying about the cross. There's, there is zero anxiety in Jesus' heart as he's praying this prayer. He's not anxious. He is embracing the moment. He is eager to finish his obedience, and he is expectant that the Father will finish what he started. Second, then, what does Jesus ask? So that's how Jesus asks. These are, those were the reasons, motivations, arguments, rationales that Jesus uses to ask God to say yes. But what does Jesus ask for? What does he pray for when he prays? What does he want God to give well, the first thing Jesus prays is, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. That's his first ask. Glorify your Son. The hour that has come is the hour that has been coming throughout the whole of John's Gospel. It's the hour in which Jesus will offer himself as the substitute sacrifice to atone for our sins and appease God's wrath on the cross over us. That hour that we have repeatedly said his hour had not yet come, his hour was not yet arrived, his hour was not yet, now it is. And it is in that hour, the hour of Jesus' suffering and death, that he wants the Father to glorify the Son. The Son wants to be glorified. He wants to display his magnificence and his significance as he hangs on the cross. This is what I came for. This is who I am. This is my relationship to the Father. This is my obedience. This is my loyalty. This is my love. And this is my concern for the world. This is my concern for my elect. This is my concern for the church. I will bleed. I will die. I will lay down my life. 
That is the act in which Jesus wants the Father to glorify him. It is not merely after the fact of the cross, but in the act of the cross that Jesus wants the Father to display who the Son is in all his glory. Not just after the fact, but in the middle of the act. Glorify me on the cross, not just after the cross. But again, the symbol of the cross is a symbol of shame. And yet Jesus finds something glorious about this. And it is his submission to the Father's will, his voluntary laying down of his life out of love for his people. That act of suffering in self-sacrificing love, in obedience to his Father on behalf of his people, that, Jesus says, is how he wants his Father to glorify him. I want to show the world how much I trust you, Father. I want to show the world I'm willing to obey you to my own hurt and loss for the salvation of the people you chose to save by the atoning power of my blood. I want to show my people how much I love them and the length to which I will go to save them from the foolishness of their sin, the corruption of their sin, the guilt of their sin, and their slavery to it. Now, that is a very different definition of glory than the world uses, isn't it? I'm reminded of an old movie, which I can't recommend the whole thing, so I'm not going to mention it. But this guy wants to prove his love for this woman. And he says, you know what? I know how I'm going to prove this, my love for you. I'm going to go win this match for you. Oh, that's how men talk, right? That's how men seek glory. I'm going to win the game for you, honey. And you know what she says? No, 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 no. You love me? Lose for me. Lose for me, and I will know that you love me. And he does it to his own hurt. And she can barely stand to look. And then she says, okay, now I want you to win for me. Now that I know you will lose for me, you may win for me. That's love. That's this kind of love. That's glory. And it's different because Jesus is not of this world. So he didn't live for this world. He lived and died for the world to come, not for this life, but for eternal life, both his and ours. And that's the next thing he prays for, is our eternal life. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what he's asking. Will you give them eternal life? Will you let them know you and me? So that eternal life is not just an infinite duration of existence as we now know it. That would be laborious. That would get old. This eternal life is a quality of life only given by God's Spirit through the new birth, through the regeneration that Jesus talked about with Nicodemus. It is new, this new and eternal principle of loving what the Holy God loves, hating what he hates because you have a new affection, a new thought, a new inclination, a whole new mind and heart, a whole new faculty of relating to God and the things of God that you didn't have before and you could not whip up on your own. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. But Jesus only does this by virtue of his death and resurrection in our place for our sins. So the new birth to eternal life, being born again, is what it means to know the only true God in Jesus Christ. You can't know God in Christ for who he is unless God does something to you first in order for you to actually know and enjoy and understand him. He's above you and me. We don't get him. We're still confused by his idea of what glory is when he equates glory with the cross. 
There's a difference between knowing about God and Jesus intellectually and knowing God and Jesus because you have a new principle of eternal life in your heart teaching you to understand and drawing you out to love and appreciate the Father and Son for who they really are and not for who you think they should be. This is what Jesus wants for all his people. This is what he prays. Not just an infinite duration of life, but an infinitely satisfying and eternally deep knowledge of God in Christ, starting now in this life in regeneration and then enduring even after we die and rise from the dead. This is what Jesus wants for you. This is what Jesus prays for you. Will you let him know you? Let him know you. Let him not just know about you. Don't just let him know facts and statistics. Let him know how you tick. Let him know what makes you run. Let him know me. Let him know what I did for him, for her. If that's what you want, if that's what you pray, if that's what you move things around in your heart to accommodate, then you are in him. If not, then you may know a lot about God in Christ, but you do not know God in Christ by having this eternal life-giving principle in you yet. Christianity is not just about affirming a right doctrine and worldview so that you still hold to male and female created in God's image. You can hold to that and not be a Christian. You can oppose abortion and not be a Christian. You can be a monotheist and not be a Christian. You can hold to a young earth theory of the world and not be a Christian. Being a Christian is about having new life given to you in your heart so that you love what Jesus loves, hate what Jesus hates, and know him for who he is. It's about being revived with a new inner pleasure in divine things by the life-awakening, life-sustaining influence of God's Spirit, making you alive to God in Christ and to the things Christ is praying for you so that those things become your favorite things. When you are alive like that, that life in you does not die because Jesus prays for its perseverance in you. That's the next thing he prays, our persevering union with Christ in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Keep them in your name. What does that mean? In brief, it means keep them together in the truth and faith and fellowship of the Trinity, unlike Judas, who maintained only a superficial and temporary attachment to Jesus. Judas was not one of those whom the Father had given Jesus. Jesus did not lose Judas. The sense of verse 12 is not that the only one Jesus lost was Judas. No, Jesus did not lose Judas. The sense is that Jesus lost none of those who were given to him, and by contrast, Jesus went his own way because God used his sinfulness to fulfill Scripture by betraying Jesus. But he wasn't lost. Jesus then is praying here that God the Father would keep the disciples trusting God's faithfulness and trusting Jesus. Keep them abiding in Christ. Let them persevere in union with Christ, God, and each other. Let them persevere in trusting your attributes and reflecting them increasingly because of their union with Christ. Next request is our unity together in the gospel. This is what Jesus is getting at when he prays for us in verse 11. Keep them one, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. But that unity, that oneness that Jesus prays for in the church is not institutional or or denominational. You hear this passage quoted a lot in arguments about the ecumenical movement about trying to make all branches of Christianity or all denominations one institutionally, visibly. Doesn't he want us all to be one? And why are there so many denominations? Now this unity he's talking about is real. But it is real in a spiritual and invisible way that even denominational and institutional unity cannot create. 
you could have denominational institutional unity and not have what Jesus is talking about here. Because it's spiritual. It's invisible. It's a reality that cannot be produced in a worldly institutional way. There is, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to our call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, (coughs) one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Mark Dever has said, I think rightly, that this spiritual invisible unity becomes visible when believers share the same baptism, partake of the same supper, and look forward to sharing one heavenly city. The church on earth experiences this unity only as its members are united in God's truth as it's revealed in Scripture. This is why you can meet a Christian from Zambia, having never met him before. You talk with him for five or ten minutes about the gospel, and you think, me and you, we're like this. I know a guy like that. We support him, Lazarus Peary. I remember the, the day I met him, I felt like that about him. Like, what? Where did you come from? I feel like I have known you all my life, man. I loved him for the minute I met him. I didn't have to be in the same denomination as him. I didn't have to have some institutional visible unity with him, a spiritual unity with him. We thought the same about the gospel. We would experience the same new birth. So the whole church is one in the sense that when we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, we have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, all those who are regenerate. The whole church across space and time in that sense is one assembly. But this unity is also, in the context of John 17, a unity in our shared holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that's the next thing that Jesus prays for us is our holiness. Jesus notes of his disciples, John 17, 16, They're not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. You see there how Jesus' prayer for our holiness is intertwined inseparably with our commission for ministry in the world. Sanctify me. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them. They're inseparable. The consecration is for commission. You are not just consecrated away from worldliness in order to kind of live a monastic life by yourself in some holiness that you think is escapism. No, you, you are consecrated to ministry for the proclamation of Christ's word in your life and in your words. So this holiness then is not less than separation from worldliness and sin. It is that. It is moral distinctiveness from the world, but it's more than that. This holiness is consecration or dedication to God's mission for the purposes of saving a people for Christ's name out of the world. Again, we're not to be monastics. We're not to join a monastery. We're not to be a church that looks like we are living as if we're in a monastery. Never talking to (coughs) non-Christians. We don't just withdraw from the world in order to live a cloistered life away from dirty sinners. After all, we can't get away from the dirty sinners since we ourselves are dirty sinners. Jesus wants us consecrated in holy thinking, feeling, loving, and living in order that we might be effective witnesses and ambassadors commissioned to the world to draw others into the orbit of Christ's redemptive work. Holiness is not for isolation. Holiness is for invitation and engagement. And this is the way that you become a reliable character witness for Jesus and against the world's rejection of him. This is the next thing that Jesus prays, our evangelism. This unity in our holiness and our testimony serves then for the purpose of verse 23, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That the world may know. 
Our unity and holiness and loyalty to Jesus and the truth and love of Christ is designed by Jesus to be an amplifier for our witness to the world. Christian, you are not just set apart from sin for yourself or even for the church. You are set apart from sin for the sake of our shared witness to the world that Jesus has loved us in a saving way, in a sacrificial way, in a forgiving way. You are holy for the world's sake so that the world would know that God sent Jesus and that God loves us as he loves Jesus. That's why you should be holy. That's God's purpose for your holiness. And this is why it's important for us as a church to exercise corrective church discipline when it's necessary. We correct each other privately so that we don't let each other wander into more enslaving or public or damaging sins. We preserve our unity and holiness and resolve our differences promptly and directly so that we don't descend into counterproductive bickering and backbiting. And in rare cases, we exercise public corrective discipline. We discipline people out of the membership of the church when they continue to sin in serious and outward ways without repenting or taking God's side against their sins. All of this is to protect the holiness of our witness. Because our holiness goes directly to our credibility in the courtroom of public opinion about who Jesus is. You can't get on the stand, on the witness stand, with a bunch of holes in your character that are so obvious to the prosecution that they just pick you apart and they don't even have to listen to your testimony. Their last question to you in that case will be, then why should we listen to you? Because your church lets people go on sinning without remorse. And you yourself don't seem to care that your life doesn't match up with your profession of faith in a holy Christ. Christian, when was the last time that you prayed that you and we would grow in holiness together so that the world could at least find our testimony credible and compelling and maybe even convincing? Nobody's perfect, I get it, but just as no one expects perfection in a human courtroom, nobody expects perfection from us. You don't have to be perfectly sinless to stand up in court and testify to the truth or falsity of something. But if your testimony is compromised on the point at issue in particular, then what are you doing? What they expect is people who practice what they preach, even when that means confessing our own sins and taking God's side against our own sinfulness. What the world needs is not a church that looks and dresses and sings and talks like the world. What the world needs is a holy church. Because only a holy church can give a credible and compelling witness to Christ. Next thing Jesus asks of the Father is our eternal togetherness, worshiping him in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus wants us to be with him with him, in glory, to see and love his glory. That's Jesus' heart for you, Christian. That's what Jesus prayed for, for you, on the very night he died for you. I want them to be with me. I want them to come and see my glory forever and enjoy it. Jesus is preparing for us that joy now in our life together as a local church and in our shared worship of him together on the Lord's Day. He's getting our hearts ready to enjoy that joy of seeing his glory forever and being satisfied in it. The way he does that is by growing us in holiness and giving us practice at worshiping him together with his people in the church. And what we do together here then is in preparation for eternity. This is the rehearsal 
for our eternal togetherness in worshiping Jesus. There is nothing for selfish or unholy people to enjoy in heaven. If you are happy with your selfishness, if you are happy in your unholiness, you will be miserable in heaven because there's nothing for you there. There is nothing in heaven for people who do not enjoy being with God's people. (laughs) Because heaven is full of God's people. So if you want to enjoy heaven, you'd better start learning how to enjoy God's people here on earth. Our fitness for that eternity starts in this church. You are here because Jesus wants you with him there. And he wants you to enjoy it. And last request that Jesus makes in this prayer is our love. Our love. Jesus' closing request to his Father in verse 26 is that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That is why he has made known his name to us through the apostles who wrote scripture. That's why he makes himself known to us in the preaching of his word week in and week out in our biblical conversations with each other day to day, Jesus wants us to experience the Father's love for him in ourselves and in each other, in our love for each other. He wants the Father's love for the Son to be in us as adopted sons and daughters in Christ. He wants us not only to experience that love from the Father ourselves, he wants us to love each other like that. That is his prayer. Is that your prayer? You pray like that for yourself and others? Now listen, before you get all hopeless and despondent because you don't feel close to measuring up to all this, I know some of you are going to respond to this message like that. Oh man, I could never pray like that. Oh man, I don't pray like that. Oh, ah. Before you do that, just remember, this is Jesus' prayer for you. Jesus is praying these things for you and the arguments he's using with God as he's praying these things for you, are compelling arguments with God. Look at verse 13. Why does Jesus pray these things before he dies? Not so that you would be put under the pile because you don't pray like this, but so that we might have his joy fulfilled in us. When Jesus prays, it's as good as done. God does not say no to Jesus. But look at what he's prayed. Jesus lets you overhear him praying these things precisely so that you would be encouraged that he's praying these things for you, for us. When Jesus prays, things happen. So Christian, be encouraged. Jesus is praying all these things so that you would be full of the joy that Jesus that fills Jesus' heart when he prays because he knows God's going to say yes. Well, so much more could be said about Jesus' prayer in John 17. We're only scraping the service of the depth of Jesus' love for us and what he prays for us out of his love and obedience to his Father and in the arguments he uses to find favor with his Father, there is an inner logic to this prayer and a fellowship between Jesus and his Father here, the depths of which will never be plumbed by human exegesis or understanding. We've walked into something here that we will never understand We listen to Jesus praying for us and we marvel at it. In John 17, we have walked around the corner to discover an intimate conversation between God the Father and God the Son to listen and to stand in awe. We've never heard prayer like this. We've never seen love like this. We have not known the inner fellowship of the triune God like this, but Jesus has let us listen in on him praying for us. He wanted us to overhear this so that he could give us a taste of his unity with his Father in the accomplishment of our redemption. It shows you Jesus' obedient love for his Father, his love for us, his eager embrace of the cross for the glory and joy set before him. It gives you a sense of his priorities for us by what he prays for us and by the arguments he uses to prevail with his Father in prayer. These are all things that Jesus is asking for you. He is asking these things for you and for us. Maybe it's time 
that you started asking him to. Let's pray again. Oh, Lord Christ, you would have been well within your rights to keep that prayer private and all to yourself, just between you and your Father. And we confess, we've walked in on it, and we don't even know what to do with it. There's a depth to these things that you spoke to your Father that is beyond our ability, beyond our reason, beyond our understanding of your love and your obedience. We pray that what we have understood, that we would be encouraged by, that we would rejoice in, that it would give our hearts joy to have heard these things, that you are praying, why you are praying them, and that we would learn to imitate the way you pray, the things you pray. But even more, would you help our hearts marvel and love you for talking to your Father on our behalf like that. Help us to understand and internalize, to accept, to marvel, to worship, to love, to trust that you have loved us like this. For Jesus' sake, amen.